So we're looking at the promises of God, and we've been looking at them for five weeks already. And beginning in the book of Genesis, we saw first, oddly enough, a promise to Satan, to the deceiver, a promise that one day he will be destroyed. And at the same time as God makes this promise to Satan, he makes an alternative promise to Eve, that where she has failed in her faith, she, the victim, will also receive a promise, an offspring from her will win where she has failed. And God begins Scripture with a promise, and God says in the beginning that this promise can go one of two ways, Satan's way or Eve's way. And we've seen these promises amplified, refined, restated, any of those ideas might work for you, to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to the whole people of God, these great five covenantal promises in the Old Testament that we've examined. And now we fast forward to the end, to Revelation. And we're saying here that, that uh, as these promises are refined, amplified, or whichever one it is that you like, really we start to see that all of these promises of God are fulfilled in one way only, by one man only. 1 Corinthians 1.20 says, all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. He defeats our enemy. He pays for our sins. He dies the death that really is ours. And then he rises to new life and he says that can be ours as well. He promises also to return for his children. That is us, the children of the promise. And this is grossly out of proportion to what we deserve. What we deserve is death. But God promises grace. So now we're in part two of this series. We just skip over the whole of the Bible. We started in Genesis, now in Revelation, and we're looking at how the promises are fulfilled yet more in Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter one is written after Jesus has died, after he has risen, after he has ascended, and that Jesus is speaking now to John and through John, through an angel, a vision is given to John to share with the churches. Chapter 1, just go back a little. Chapter 1, verse 18. Jesus speaking after death, and he says this. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He is not the victim of death. He owns death. And the promises that Jesus gives here are exactly like all of the other promises that we've been looking at. He promises one of two things to save us from it or send us to it. One of those things will occur. Do you want to be a child of Satan or a child of God? Now, uh, before we dig into Revelation, when I say the word Revelation, the church freaks out. So what we did is we softened you up for this by doing a whole series on Daniel, which is like Revelation light. Uh, People freak out because the genre of the book is weird. A large part of this book is prophetic or apocalyptic. It uses epic images and great symbols and signs to to convey in in a sort of highly symbolized, elaborate way some very simple truths about Jesus. And Jesus is speaking here, and he is saying that he wants John to send out a letter filled with images, filled with symbols and signs, to these seven early New Testament churches. Chapter 1, verse 11. Write what you see in this dream in a book 
and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then in verse 20, Jesus explains some of the things that they will see in the vision, including this word lampstand. John will see seven lampstands in his vision. It is weird, I know, but lampstands are symbolic, and Jesus explains in verse 20, lampstands symbolize the seven churches receiving this letter. Seven lampstands, seven churches. They, they symbolize them. Lampstands are highly symbolic things. A lampstand stood in the temple of God, in the presence of God. It was a consecrated, holy, liturgical item used in the temple, in the worship of God, in His presence. It's a sacred item. If that's not the idea here, uh, lampstands also appear throughout the Bible. Lamps and lights are very practical things in Scripture. They're light bulbs. They help you to see. Several of the parables that Jesus uses, uh, teaches, use this image of a lampstand or a light for keeping watch, for seeking things out, for being prepared. Servants await a returning master late at night with lamps in their hands. A poor widow looks for a coin by lighting a lamp. A whole city is ablaze and no one hides a lamp. They use it to see. Parables using lamps and lights to symbolize the presence of God and the kingdom of God and the people of God. Lights and lamps are symbolic things. Jesus uses lights and lamps to describe himself. I am the light of the world, he says. And his church, you are the light of the world, outrageously, he says, to those who are identified in him. Now in Revelation, I don't know which of those things it is, but I like to think of all of those aspects of light and lamps here. Uh, Jesus says that whenever you see the word lampstand in Revelation, do the equation lampstand equals church. And What do lampstands do? They light up the place. What are lampstands supposed to do? They're supposed to be ablaze. And this question here is, are you ablaze or are you going out? Depending which it is, whether your lamp is well lit or your lamp has flickered out, one of two contingent promises will be true for you. He will come and he will walk among the lampstands or he will throw them out. It will be one of the two. So let's open chapter 2, verse 1 now of Revelation. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Seven lampstands, seven churches. This church is Ephesians. See how Jesus walks among them? It's like Genesis, isn't it? Where God walked in the garden among Adam and Eve. He's he's close to his creation. He dwells with his creation. And Jesus, who is close to church, close to the church in Ephesus, says this in verse 2. I know what you're doing. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. Jesus knows this church is working hard for the sake of the gospel. The word works here means occupation. Christianity defines them. The word toil means labor to the point of exhaustion. It's another Genesis word. Uh, Eve will will toil in birth. Adam will toil in the garden. Uh, And uh, he says this, you cannot bear with those who are evil. 
This is good news. But have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. There are deceivers in the Ephesian church like snakes in the garden. But unlike Eve in the garden, this church has not been deceived. They have spotted the snake, and they have called out the snake with uh, sound doctrine. Ephesus has really good Christian thinking. It's not getting its doctrine from culture. Well, everyone else believes this, so we better start believing it as well. It's not getting its doctrine from false teachers. Here's what I found on the web. It is certainly not getting its doctrine from Satan. The power behind all of these deceptions is the deceiver. Ephesians thinks straight. Woo. But I have this against you. Uh Uh-oh. That you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Great doctrine, but what a boring church. You know, know, it's just boring in Ephesus. Man, is it dull. They're toiling and they're working and they're thinking, but in the words of the black-eyed peas, where is the love? Showing my age, only the old people in the room laughing. Sorry, guys, but you know, we're over the hill now, aren't we? So Christ calls this clever, thinking, straight, boring, loveless church to do three things. Verse 5. You could underline these imperatives. You know, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. Remember, repent and do. Now, a favorite scholar of mine, Leon Morris, says that it's very sad when you look at the form of the verb here, have fallen, in that past tense. They're not falling, they have fallen. The love lamp of Ephesus is not dull, it is out. It's even more sad when you realize that they didn't see it go out. They didn't notice. Remember, he says, it means they have forgotten that once they were ablaze. Our descent away from the light can be so slow and so subtle and so careful day by day that we do not see the lamp dim. Maybe you skip a reading. Maybe you skip some prayer. Maybe you skip some fellowship. Maybe you skip some church. Maybe you skip the use of your spiritual gifts. Whatever it is, with each one, that lamp just goes down a little bit more. The light dims. It's very popular right now to talk about gaslighting. You hear this phrase a lot at the moment. Uh, It's not new. Gaslighting takes its name from a play in the 1920s, a movie of the same name in the 1940s. And in the play and the movie, a man tries to convince his wife that she's going mad uh, by doing all sorts of weird things in the attic. And as he lights lights upstairs in the attic, the lights downstairs in the house start to go out. The gas supply is reduced, the lamps flicker, and she starts saying, why are all the lights flickering? And he, to drive her insane, says, I can't see anything at all, there's no problem here. He keeps trying to convince her that there's nothing going on in the house, and that is what gaslighting is all about. Revelation 2 exposes the original form of gaslighting that predates the 1920s. It's been going on since the fall. Satan has been gaslighting us convincing us that there's no problem, while at the same time turning down the light. Why don't you just be spiritual on your own, whispers Satan to us. Remember 
how bright you were before. Then when you remember, repent. Then, when you've repented, do the works that you did at first, the works of love. Start behaving like you did when you were first in love with Jesus Christ, when you were burning with passion for Jesus. Now, uh, we, we can't really precisely know what the lack of love looked like in Ephesus, but we can speculate, can't we, by just looking at ourselves. What does it look like when love grows cold? Well, look at yourself. Maybe prayer was rare. Maybe it was a very mechanical faith that they had. It was very knowledgeable, but it was inert. Maybe it's more interpersonal. Maybe members of the church were nicely dressed and they were on nodding terms with one another, but not exactly vulnerable about what was going on in their hearts, not exactly honest, not exactly generous, not exactly risky, not exactly sacrificial, not exactly gifted. Perhaps for them it was all very proper, but not at all passionate. That's what I speculate is going on in this church. Let me ask you directly. Are you in love with Jesus Christ like he is in love with you? Because you know what he did to demonstrate his love for us, don't you? And you know what a human relationship looks like when it is new and when it is full of passion. You know, uh, when you just started going out with someone and you think maybe they're the one, you text all the time, don't you? You write letters, you buy them little presents and you rush home from work early to see them and you go out on dates and you communicate all the time and you call on the phone and you say, you hang up, no, you hang up, you hang up, you hang up, bye, 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 bye. And you can't even stop talking. You hang up the phone and you send them a text, night, night, love, don't you? You send gifts, but you never count the cost. You go into the red and it seems like money well spent. And yet you probably also know that over time, that passion can change a little bit, can't it? Vacuuming the rug, taking out the trash, teaching your kids how to do middle school over Zoom becomes your new focus and the essence of your life. The love lamp dims and then the language changes. It's not bye-bye, love, love, love. It's things like, what's that smell? Is it you or is it the dog? I don't know, maybe it's your mouth. For example, that kind of talk happens in your house. Who knows? We do it with things. Let's, let's make this less awkward. We do it with things. Get a new car, right? What do you do with a new car? You wash it, you wax it, you put it in the garage. You certainly do not drive it when it's raining. It looks absolutely beautiful. Then you get a giant eagle, someone drives into it, it develops a funny noise, and in 94 degrees Fahrenheit, a child leaves a Werther's original on the dashboard, for example. <laughs> Mark says, oh, personal example. So Mark says, says we have this tendency to take the people and, and to treat the things nearest to us uh, for, for granted. That uh, our Disinterest very quickly leads to dispute, and our dispute very quickly leads to disdain. We start to treat people badly and things badly. We do it with each other. We do it with stuff. We do it with Jesus. We do this with Jesus. 
that, that first passion in conversion very often just settles into something more mechanical and more intellectual and less loving. Remember, repent, return to your first love, says Jesus Christ himself. If not, here is a promise from Jesus Christ. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Of course he will. What is the point of a lampstand with no lamp on it? It's just a stick. It's just in the way. It's just clutter. So he will throw it out. What does it mean? Well, if the lampstand represents the church that shines in the presence of God and the lamp goes out and he holds the keys to death and to Hades, it means go to hell, Ephesians. You can be as spiritual as you like on your own there. That is what it's all about on your own. Let me make this slightly more uncomfortable for you. There's no middle place. There's no middle promise. No kind of, well, you know, I'll settle for second best. Second best is hell. There is no middle place. Verse 6, yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know who these people are, but we do know that they were in the Ephesian church, but not in Christ. They were present there in the body, but being spiritual on their own. And most scholars believe that they believed in God and they possibly even believed in Jesus. But what they'd done is they had combined their Christianity with aspects of other faiths, put them together. And we do this a lot today explicitly, religiously coexist. We, we mingle a bit of New Age and a bit of Eastern mysticism and a bit of self-help with Christianity. We think somehow those things will improve upon the gospel. Uh, but it, it could be a syncretism of a far more subtle and uh, earthy nature than that, a far less obvious God. It could be hope in politics and policy that you've mixed in with the gospel or education or sport or, or money or, or anything, anything we trust alongside Jesus is Nicolaitan Christianity, Jesus and. And Jesus says he hates this, and that if you mingle other things with Jesus, then your lamp is going out. You've been gaslit by culture that says, add to the gospel something else and that will be better. It won't, says Jesus, and it, it might shock you when you hear this phrase, go to hell, Ephesians, or Jesus' phrase, which is far more rude, I hate you. you. You might be shocked by that, but it's designed to shock. It is calculated to shock a church that has gone dim and didn't know it had gone dim into returning and repenting uh, of, of this and, and finding again its first love. Then Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit is calling to you. The Holy Spirit is, is calling to you in the darkness. Relight the lamps. Come back. Repent. The Spirit is calling to you, calling grace to you. Because you've been horrible. But the Spirit is calling grace to you. 
And this phrase, you know, if you have an ear here, this is a phrase that Jesus uses in, in, in the Gospels. It's a phrase that we find in each one of these, uh, each part of this letter to the seven churches. The Spirit is calling relight the lamps. The Spirit is calling you to receive a different promise, not the promise that Satan receives, but the promise that God wants to give to you in Jesus, not the default promise of death, but the optional promise of life in Christ. The whole story of Scripture is about this promise, a promise of an everlasting life in the presence of God that we do not deserve and that we will not receive unless and until we turn to Him. All the promises find their yes in Jesus Christ. They're all about grace. They're all about a people like me who do not deserve this thing, and yet God finds me. That's what it is. God takes away our sin and he lavishes upon us, the sinner, grace and love. To the one who conquers, Jesus says, joins him in winning. I will, there's that promise language again, I will, the promises of God, grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Now we're going back to the stars again, aren't we? Back to Genesis. Isn't it cool how you see all these echoes of, of the start at the end? And we're back to the start when Adam and Eve are thrown out of paradise. Why are they thrown out of paradise? Because they have a tendency to eat things. And it was for their own good. Having eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the worst thing they could have done then was to eat of the tree of everlasting life and uh, then live in this eternity in, in a sinful state. Death is a kindness to Adam and Eve. And now Christ says, we're done with death because we're done with sin. I died the death and I paid for the sin. I died it, I paid it as I promised I would do. And having done that, I will grant you life. It's not earned, is it? It's granted, it's given, it's a gift. The promise is a gift. And it's granted by the one who loves us more than he loves even himself. The passion of Jesus Christ the light is lit on the cross. It is the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate sign that he loves you more than he loves himself. And he died for you, and he rose for you, and he promises to return for you as well. He will grant you life when you turn to him. That is the promise of grace. Let's pray. Father God, as we walk through these churches, each with its own distinct thing, and some are the opposite of others, Perhaps we have become a bit Ephesian in our faith. Perhaps, God, we know a lot about Scripture, but we're not here much. We're not doing much, not serving, giving, not passionate, maybe. So, Father, God, when we lie down tonight to sleep, would you be the last thing that we think of? And when we awake in the morning, through that ministering work of your Holy Spirit as we sleep, would you be Lord of our dreams, driving away any snares from the enemy, and as we awake, God, would we awake to a renewed passion for you? Would you be the first thing on our minds in the morning? God, we love you. Help us to relight the lamps. God, thank you that you died for us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.